We care about our land more than somebody down in Ottawa. A land code puts the First Nation into the power of government. The biggest point for me is your ability to protect your reserves lands. Former chief of our community had the vision to sign uh, and the guts to sign that framework agreement. Business at the pace of business. I think it just proves that First Nations lands management really is working. The good thing about land code, we don't have to sell it. It sells itself. Welcome to Land Decolonized a podcast that explores the practical side of the Framework Agreement on First Nation land management in Canada. Robert Louis is a name well-known across this country as one of the pioneers of the Framework Agreement. He is chairman of the Lands Advisory Board, a former chief of West Bank First Nation, and a recipient of the Order of Canada, along with many other accomplishments. So he's the ideal person to ask why a land code was needed in the first place, and why, 24 years later, it's catching on right across Canada. Here's our conversation. And joining me now, all the way from his home office in Kelowna, British Columbia, is Robert Louis. Robert, great to have you with us on the Land Decolonized podcast. Welcome. Yeah, thank you very much, Richard. It's a pleasure to uh, join the podcast. Now, as I understand it, Robert, the, the land code process or the development of the land code process is closing in on a I guess a pretty significant milestone, and you guys must really be thrilled with how that's been developing. Well, we have been uh, in the business now for quite some time. Uh, our framework agreement was signed on February 12, 1996. Uh, legislation, of course, passed uh, by the Parliament of Canada in June of uh, 1999. And from that point on, uh, we have been very active uh, with the uh, first of our uh, communities, uh, first three communities having their land codes passed and implemented at the turn of the millennium. When the uh, midnight struck uh, with the uh, entering of the new millennium in the year 2000, we had three First Nations that uh, historically took over land management jurisdiction and became recognized governments over their lands and their resources. And since then, uh, it's been straight up with uh, other First Nation communities from coast to coast implementing land codes and taking over their land management jurisdiction. And I think you're rapidly approaching 100, right? Correct. That is our milestone. Uh, We just uh, had our uh, 96th community uh, just pass their uh, land code through their community here uh, just uh, last week. And uh, so for more, I think we would probably be at that had it not been for COVID-19. I think it's uh, slowed the uh, process of community meetings down a bit. But uh, irregardless, uh, we'll, I believe, make the 100 mark sometime by uh, later this year, 2020. Can you take me back to the mid-90s when I guess you and maybe a handful of others sat down across the table and said, you know what, we have to do something about this Indian Act I mean, what was your motivation back then? It was very clear from our perspective because it wasn't working under the Indian Act as far as land management. Sure, uh, communities uh, are not recognized as governments, and I guess that was the the biggest problem. But uh, inherent with that was policies and procedures that the Department of Indian Affairs then called were implementing. And uh, certain communities, uh, like my community at West Bank, had advanced themselves to the extent that they had uh, additional authorities granted to them under the Indian Act, which would allow them to sign leases, to do permits, 
and to do things of that nature subject to the approval of uh, the Minister of Indian Affairs or his representatives. So it was a delegated authority. So, you know, those were uh, the, the early beginnings and uh, we needed to have a change from that because uh, many of uh, the chiefs and communities looked at the uh, amendments to the constitution that took place in the, in the early 1980s, 1982 and 1984, very significant amendments were passed, section 25 and section 35 of the constitution. And inherent with those amendments uh, and the result of those amendments uh, have very much put the First Nations on the path towards recognition of self-government. Yeah. So fast forward to now, and um, I think I read somewhere that one in three First Nations across Canada has either approved a land code, is in the developmental stage, or is actually on a waiting list to work with your resource center to move things forward. Uh, how is your capacity for managing and dealing with that kind of growth? Well, we've grown as a resource center and as a lands uh, advisory board. Uh, it is a lot of work. There's no question about that. But we have a, a process that, uh, firstly, we need to have First Nations as signatories. Uh, we need Canada to fund the developmental costs. And once we have that funding in place, then we work with Canada to uh, to select the First Nations that will become developmental. Uh, developmental basically means that the community has uh, has agreed that they want to pursue the development of a land code, and they're in the process then to get a land code law developed. And there is a lot of communication within a community, as you can imagine. You can take Canada, for example, and uh, and if you needed to have something recognized in Canada that was so uh, uh, overwhelming that it required all the citizens, it takes time to get that understanding to all the citizens in Canada to uh, adopt or to accept uh, something major that might take place. So with First Nation communities, what is major is they are no longer going to be controlled by the Department of Indian Affairs. They're going to be recognized as governments with decision-making powers. They're going to have the power to pass their own laws. And once passed, those laws take precedence over their lands and their resources. It has the power of the federal government uh, being inherently recognized in First Nations hands. So that involves community members accepting that process. And a lot of effort has to be put in the, in the communities for the members to understand what it is that they're getting into, what it is they desire, what it is that they want incorporated into their laws. And it's a whole process that, uh, that takes time. And, uh, and this is the developmental process when a First Nation uh, takes on the undertaking of, yes, we want to pass a land code. Yes, we want to be self-governing over the extent that we have control over our lands and resources. And this is how we're going to do it. So that's all part of the process. When I talked to some chiefs in, in Winnipeg a few years ago, something that came up a lot was environmental law, that the land code gave them powers even beyond what a province or municipality might try to do to protect its land. Is that the case? Very much so. Um, if you look at a municipal government, uh, a municipality is a creature of government, meaning they do not have the lawmaking capacity 
their their uh, direction comes from the provincial government. Uh, the uh, the uh, municipalities can pass various bylaws and ordinances that that sort of thing and make certain community decisions that are inherent with a particular community or a town or, or an area. Uh, a First Nation, once it has a land code in place, has the power of government, has the power of federal statute. Uh, it's no longer a delegated body. It is a fully recognized government with full lawmaking powers. And those lawmaking powers take precedence over anything that Canada could do, the province could do, and certainly any municipality. So. It's far-reaching when you look at it from that aspect. And I'm guessing a community will take its own unique approach to having a land code because, you know, out here in the east, we have one developmental community with, you know, 450 members on reserve, and yet you've got some extremely large First Nation communities that are part of the process. And I'm guessing they have to tailor their, their land code to their very specific needs. That's correct. Uh, there are no two land codes that may be exactly identical. Some are similar in nature, uh, but others uh, may focus in other areas uh, and other things. Like if you're in the prairies, for example, you may have a lot of agriculture, and that may be uh, much of the land management that has to be focused there. If you're on the far north, if you're in the timber, uh, wooded areas, it may be the timber resources or extraction of minerals or something of low of, of that nature, and that may become a, a focus. But uh, all in all, um, if the lands are going to be properly managed and dealt with, uh, it has to have the First Nation participation, and ideally, uh, it should have uh, and fall within under the laws that the First Nation creates. So this is the uniqueness of every land code uh, and the focus of every community. Most, if not all, communities uh, will, uh, many of them have already uh, started focusing on land use planning, for example, comprehensive land use plans, um, how lands are going to be developed, what is going to be allowed on each of the lands and how it's going to be zoned. And these are regulatory controls that a First Nation may focus on and and other communities may have priority uh, right now. Perhaps some of the priorities have focused on COVID-19. Uh, how do you deal with that? Uh, who do you allow on the land? And how, is, how are you going to regulate that? How are you going to protect the, uh, the, the community members and the, uh, and the businesses and uh, to prevent the spread of it? These are the types of things that many of the communities are certainly focused on right now as an example. And, and it will and it will change, of course, throughout time and the needs of the community. Some may focus on the the uh, the flooding areas or uh, or uh, something with uh, climate change. Or it could be a multiple of areas, multitude of areas, much like Canada or any of the provinces might deal with. You've been at this for such a long time, Robert, and uh, you do a lot of speaking and writing on it. And are there some communities that stand out as? as real models or real success stories that you like to share? Oh, there are so many. I would hate to, uh, hate to uh, <laughs> miss uh, one, uh, any one of them, but uh, there are so many. I mean, uh, communities have been very successful. I mean, uh, uh, I mean just uh, take a look at uh, Saskatchewan, take a look at uh, White Cat, Dakota, for example, Chief Darcy Bear and his community, 
Uh, you know, when they started with a land code, uh, I believe their unemployment uh, rate at, right at the beginning, I think, was probably in that, I think, according to the chief, was in that in or around that 90% unemployment. And uh, and throughout time, uh, they've moved it uh, so that unemployment is less than 5%, uh, ideally almost 0%. I mean that's a success story in itself. There's no question, and uh, and uh, kudos to uh, the White Cap Dakota peoples uh, in Saskatchewan for achieving that type of progress. Uh, uh, take a look at the Nipissing uh, community uh, in Ontario, uh, North Bay. Uh, they've advanced themselves and used their land code and their authority, their jurisdiction to. Uh, further economic development ventures and to have their communities recognized as uh, as a, uh, caretakers of their other lands and have moved ahead with uh, partnerships with uh, major economic development projects. So, I mean, the uh, list uh, keeps going on and on. There's so many success stories that have uh, resulted in, uh, in Canada. And out in this neck of the woods, in the in the far east, of course, we have Member Two First Nation and under Chief Terry Paul, and the transformation there economically has been unbelievable. Absolutely, that is a very astute community, uh, very economic minded, uh, has got many businesses underway, um, and uh, I uh, I certainly recognize the efforts that that community has moved uh, so far ahead of many others um, uh, in the, in Canada. So they've done tremendously well. There may be some concern in some communities that, well, this is, this is chief and council, you know, trying to take us down a, a certain path, but this is more community led, right? Than, than chief and council led. I mean, there is the political involvement obviously, but how do you balance those two? Well, I look at it this way. Uh, I was the chief of my community for just over 24 years, um, and I recognize a huge difference uh, being a chief under the Indian Act and being a chief with a land code or self-government. Under the Indian Act, uh, less accountability to a chief and council. You may be able to pass certain by, uh, uh, bylaws under the Indian Act, and you may be able to get away with it quite effectively without proper consultation. And proper consultation is required with land code. Under the Indian Act, not necessarily so. And I'll give you an example. Um, uh, in the early days, in the late 1980s and just coming into 1990 timeframe, we were dealing with property taxation. Uh, property taxation uh, on First Nation lands and the uh, the onslaught of that in the early days, it was a very negative thing. First Nation um, opposed property taxation, opposed any discussion with property taxation, and uh, the chief and council uh, passed or wanted to move ahead with it. The, that chief and council were usually thrown out of office uh, the next election. I had to deal with that issue and I had to make a decision as the chief and convince my council at that time that this was something we wanted to move ahead with. We made that decision. We did not ask for a vote in our community to pass our uh, property taxation law because quite frankly, I knew without one sliver of doubt that it would not have been passed. But we had to make that um, decision. 
So we did it. We have since implemented, and right now the uh, property taxation con continues to flourish. Uh, it's uh, probably in that $15 million per year range right today, and there is so many benefits that can uh, be seen as a result of that. A brief question about business. Uh, along with being a lawyer and a, an advocate for Indigenous governance across Canada, you're also an entrepreneur and a business owner. Uh, some chiefs have told me that what they love about land code is that it lets a community operate at the speed of business. And that seems to be a real selling point. Well, that is very much so. Um, First Nations all have various reasons for wanting land codes and wanting jurisdiction. Some of the communities uh, certainly focus on the issue of economic development and having businesses located on their lands. And that may be uh, some of the... Uh, objectives in some of these communities. So uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's something that uh, certainly motivates uh, communities. So to move ahead in, in that, uh, I think is, when you talked about the speed of business um, and you look at the Indian Act and you compare the Indian Act process and, uh, and how a development were to take place. Uh, let's take something as simple as a, as a gas station convenience store. That's going to be located on the reserve, for example. Generally, you would need lease lease in, in, uh, lease in place, generally you will need financing of that, of the, of the economic development matter. As you proceed through that process under the Indian Act, you almost end up at a crawl space getting that in place because you then need to approach the Indian Affairs Department. They will have uh, likely a regional office located somewhere within the region of the province. It goes through that, uh, that process. Uh, that process also incorporates the headquarters at, uh, in Ottawa, uh, and that's a whole other process. Then you have the Canada Lands uh, uh, survey people that may be involved in the actual lease and how you survey those lands to get that economic development project ready. All of this takes a lot of time, and I've heard communities in the past say that we've tried to get something through. If we've been now uh, at it for two years. When is it going to happen? The cost of not having business done in a timely matter is so high that uh, it frustrates it. One community that I know, uh, Muscaday, uh, under then Chief Austin Bear, uh, described his process when they had a uh, agricultural um, uh, plant uh, uh, that was going to uh, to locate on their land. So it was going to create all kinds of jobs. And they went through the Indian Act process to get this lease in place. By the time they were halfway through it, the uh, the agricultural group implementation uh, implements group left said, "We can't. We don't have the time." So frustrating. You have to be able to uh, to get projects uh, through at the uh, at the pace of business. So where to from here? Once you pass 100, what's next on the agenda? Well, we have a long ways to go. Uh, there's, uh, I believe, a approximately 634 First Nations in Canada. Uh, there's only a, a very few handful that uh, outside of the land code process that are self-governing or who have uh, uh, settled with modern day treaties. So the majority of First Nations are still out there and many of them still want to have a process in place. So it, it, it takes time. Uh, to to get a land code passed, and uh, we will work on um, anywhere 
at any given time, there may be up to 50 developmental First Nations at any given time frame. Uh, it generally takes uh, an average of two years to get a land code through a community. With COVID-19, uh, I think it's going to take a little longer mm. for some of these communities. So, you know, we can only move at the, at the pace that we're allowed to move uh, and, and where government funds this for the developmental costs. I mean, uh, uh, some years we may have 20 communities, some years 15, some years 12, some years 10. And it will depend uh, on the uh, on the funding that's allowed and the and the pace that our communities want to go through. So there's a lot, many more years, uh, probably several decades, unless we can figure out a way with government to expedite that. It just takes time. So it's uh, it's going to be quite a number of years yet before we can address all of the demands in Canada. Well, it's been fascinating to hear of the process so far. And I, I know in the weeks and months ahead, we'll be speaking with other board members too, to hear their experience and uh, what excites them about the process. So Robert, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Richard, it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, all the best to you and your family. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. The Land Decolonized podcast is brought to you by the First Nations Land Management Resource Center and is supported by the Lands Advisory Board. For up-to-date information on the land code, including governance tools, training materials, and much more, visit labrc.com. That's labrc.com. I'm Richard Perry. Thank you for listening.